Hello, thank you for joining us. Today I'm very happy to be speaking with Dr. Ilan Remler, Program Director of the Addiction Medicine Fellowship at Kaiser Permanente for Northern California. Dr. Remler will help explain to us the science behind addiction and why quitting the use of substances is more difficult than it seems. Thank you, Dr. Remler, for being with us today. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's get started. How do we define addiction? So the first thing we want to do when we think of addiction is that it's a problem. Most people who got involved, get involved in addiction medicine came to it because of the problems they saw in either in their own lives or in patients' lives. You know, I, I was an internal medicine hospitalist doctor prior to focusing on addiction medicine, and it seemed to me that the more I looked, the larger it played. Now, I was in a county hospital primarily when I first started noticing this, but even as I've worked in other hospitals, I found it to be the case. So I think it's really important to understand that addiction is the primary cause of most of the leading causes of preventable death in the United States. So cigarette smoking is the leading cause of preventable death. 7.7% of the population over 18 have a substance use disorder. Alcohol is the third leading cause of death. Drug overdose is the fourth leading cause of preventable death, and it's increasing despite everything that we're doing. Over the course of people's lives, about 20% of men, about 20% of women will have an alcohol use disorder. Marijuana use is increasing at 17% of the population now. And stimulant use as a cause of overdoses increasing, especially here on the West Coast. So the first thing to understand is before we define addiction, we want to make sure that we have an inclusive definition of what the problem is when we go into this. So in terms of your specific question, there's a lot of ways people define addiction. I'm a part of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Their definition is sort of where we are as a in the medical community, and it's addiction is defined as a treatable chronic medical disease involving complex interactions between brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and individuals' life experiences. People with addiction use substance or engage in behaviors that become compulsive and often continue despite harmful consequences. So that definition sort of emphasizes what people in our community have been trying to push that this is a medical disease that we belong in the medical community like other things. The sort of standard definition involves the four C's, which are cravings, compulsions, consequences, and control. From your question, that would be sort of where I would want to begin the definition. So building on that, can you elaborate on the four C's and how they help us differentiate between an addiction disorder versus just substance use? So traditionally, there was an idea that substance use sort of went along a certain pattern that people would first initiate, then they would experiment, then they would have regular use, then they have risky use, and then they would have dependence and addiction and crisis and treatment was sort of like the pattern of it. Because the pattern isn't particularly consistent, the DSM wanted it to be based on things that you could define in terms of behaviors and thinkings and things that you could ask patients of. And so the difference sort of between just substance use and addiction is these four C's, the cravings, the compulsions, the consequences, and control. And just to get a flavor of what the DSM-5 criteria are, so it's taking the substance in larger amounts or for longer than you meant to, wanting to cut down or stopping the substance but not managing to, spending a lot of time getting using or recovering from the use of the substance, having cravings and urges to use the substance, not managing to do what you should work at home or school because of the substance, continuing to use even when it causes problems, giving up important social, occupational, recreational activities because of the substance, using substance again and again even when it puts you in danger, continuing use even when you know you have a physical or psychological problem that could have been caused or made worse by the substance, 
needing more of the substance to get the effect you want, which is tolerance, and then developing withdrawal symptoms, which can be relieved by taking more of the substance. So the big thing is just to understand that it's not just the immediate tolerance and the withdrawal or even just using the substance, but it's that these four C's, cravings, compulsion, consequences, and control, which you want to think of, and so it's how it's affecting the person's life in general. Okay. So how do drugs actually work on the brain to produce pleasure? Well, so I think it's, uh, I think it's important to think of the difference between the, the word pleasure and the word compulsion or even desire, right, to do things. So they're a little bit different, right? So the standard model that people have is that people start using, and it's so wonderful, and it's so wonderful, and it's so wonderful. But in fact, as we'll talk about later, I'm sure, it's not because it's always so wonderful each time. It's that because people have this, this compulsion, as we said, and they lose control over it. So the basic idea is that the brain is being, quote unquote, hijacked by uh, addictive drugs. There are certain areas in the brain, the classic pattern is that it's dopamine related and it's from the ventral tegmental area to the nucleus accumbens, the prefrontal cortex. And basically that the drugs all increase the level of dopamine. And so the standard view is that there's a certain basal amount of dopamine that we have sort of in life that to get out of bed, you need around 50 and that to sort of, if you're at 40, you won't even get out of bed. So about 50 to 100 is sort of standard in your day, a really great day, the greatest thing, greatest meal, sex, that sort of thing. You're in, you're getting into the 100, but the drugs can get you in the 200s to 400s and the things like methamphetamines can even get you into the thousands. And so that once you get that level of dopamine, it teaches your brain not so much that something's pleasurable, but it's that something you desire, right, that you need it. It starts becoming sort of something that you have a compulsion. You know, you're at least impulsively going to act, and then as time goes on, you're going to compulsively act as these brain circuits become more and more. In addition, this dopamine that's going from this ventral tegmental area to the nucleus accumbens, the prefrontal cortex, is decreasing the prefrontal cortex's ability to go backwards into the brain and sort of control your behavior. So the idea is basically that your lower levels of the brain are being amped up, but your prefrontal cortex ability to go back down and influence those areas is being decreased. In addition, the sort of negative aspects of addiction start coming in certain parts of the brain as well. You start having increasing production of things that make you sort of unhappy if you don't use the drugs. Some of that is because there's downregulation of the dopamine receptors in all the areas we talked about, but it's also because there's increased areas of things that are causing displeasure that can only be alleviated by taking the drug. There's more corticotropin releasing factor, more neuropeptide Y, and more dynorphin. These are sort of stress-related hormones and things that are released when people start using, and these can only be sort of toned down for the user if they use the substance. So it's a mi it's sort of a mixture of processes. Some of it's the dopamine, some of it's the damage to the different parts of the brain from the drugs, from the dopamine, some of it's the upregulation of stress hormones that make the uh, individual unhappy. Why do some people become addicted to drugs while others don't? Well, some of it we know and some of it we don't. It's approximately, you know, 10%. Most people don't become addicted even to give a substance. They like to always talk about the rat model. They'd give you an addictive drug and you'd stick a rat in the cage by themselves and the rat would take it till they killed themselves essentially and wouldn't eat. 
the experiment was redone, if you gave them other rats and the social things to do, the vast majority of them didn't do that. And in humans, we think that roughly 10% of people have sort of an addictive tendency. They found that basically amongst people who have substance use disorder or addiction, that it's thought to be 50% due to genetics. So some of it that could be have to do with the dopamine, some of it could have to be the different parts of the brain, as we might talk, we talked about already, or might talk more further. So it's about 10%, whatever it is. Some of it's genetic, some of it's receptors. Obviously, there are environmental factors. So specifically, when you talk about environmental factors, there's been a lot of work on the ACEs, right, adverse childhood events. And so there's lots of evidence that the better environment someone is growing up, the less trauma they have, or even the less stress they have, the less likely they are to have addiction. Uh, obviously, comorbidities play a role, so it tends to go with people with other mental illnesses, other physical illnesses as well. So we, we don't understand it completely. It's a multifactorial disease, but it has a lot to do with people's planning, has a lot to do with their substance use, their goals, it has to do with their ability to regulate emotions, etc. It has to do with what their environment is and what you know habits they've, they've also been exposed to as well. Um, so you've kind of discussed this before, but would you consider addiction to be a voluntary behavior? So I think the concept of the hijacked brain is real. The way I like to talk to families of patients, you know, it, it's a voluntary in the sense that if somebody told you you could only eat every day at five o'clock in the evening, is, is that a voluntary behavior? The answer is yes, right? It is a voluntary behavior. It's just a very hard behavior. It might not be something that you could do. It might be something that when you weren't paying attention, you would find yourself somehow nibbling at something, or you might run away and hang around with people who weren't telling you to do that, or you might do all kinds of things. So it's not that people are forcing people to use it, but that's obviously a very difficult, I mean, people can fast at different abilities and et cetera. But I know for me, if somebody said, you have to every day start your first meal has to be at five o'clock in the evening, you know, I'm not sure I could last a day, much less a week or a month. And that's the kind of struggle that for at least a period of time, how long a period of time does depend on the substance, the individual, et cetera. But we're not talking about days or weeks. We're talking about months to years where it's that kind of effort, that kind of struggle, that kind of organization, that kind of social support structure, et cetera. So what other behavioral changes does addiction cause? Well, I think the big thing that we'd like to emphasize is isolation, especially when we're seeing patients. So they tend to be isolated and they tend to want to be isolated. In general, people with addiction usually use their substance you know, alone who have significant addiction, not always, but usually, or if they do, they tend to just be with other people who are using. They tend to hide it. They tend to not want to let people know about it. Even when we see them in the setting of them trying to get better, they don't immediately want people to be involved. They sort of want to get past it. There's a lot of evidence that the more you can get the person to see the bigger outside world, the better. Partly that's because, you know, it gives them other goals, it gives them other things that are positive, gives people just the support. But it's also because the whole neurobiology and anatomy that we discussed earlier basically does hijack the brain. And, you know, when you previously were getting a reasonable amount of dopamine just from seeing your friends, going out to eat with people, enjoying yourself, seeing other people, now you're sort of just getting it more and more and more from the drug. And, you know, the more and more that compulsive behavior, the more and more it gets focused on one thing, the less and less things 
around you seem to matter and seem to be important, and that's a big part of people who have significant addiction. Now that we understand the physiological mechanisms behind addiction, what are some treatments that are effective? So, you know, I think there's lots of things that we've tried, and some things have been effective, and some things have not been effective and you know some things aren't clear and so the one thing that's exciting about the world of addiction is that we are do have some therapies that are now seeming to be effective one thing that's exciting about it is that we haven't figured it all out one idea is just that we want to sort of replace the drug so that we can normalize the person's life so the sort of classic example would be methadone for opiate use disorder methadone is an opiate agonist and it's a full agonist you know it doesn't work exactly uh, like heroin but it you know works similarly enough that the idea was that if we could just first of all make it so the person wasn't doing a criminal act and then that they could get it they'd have a stable supply and that the receptors would be controlled, et cetera, and that the the person, uh, you know, that they would get their life to be sort of stable. The level in their system would be enough that the levels wouldn't be going up and down and causing addictive behavior and that they wouldn't be doing dangerous things like injecting themselves. That That's sort of the first sort of standard of replacement and, and stabilization. We want to just stabilize the situation. Now, there are other treatments that are sort of blocking, okay? So if we could detox somebody, get them through the period of where their body went through the physical withdrawal. And again, we'll just stick with opiates. But for all addiction, you can, the basic idea is the same thing. So the idea for opiate addiction, right, is that you would have, after you got the person through a period of physical detox, which would last in a few days or to a week or, or two at most, then you would then block their ability to use the drug. And so now Trexone for opiates is the classic example of that. So blocking rather than replacement is another option that we try. And and then, of course, there's partial blocking, which is something like buprenorphine, also known as Suboxone. Again, we're just sticking with opioids for now. And that's the idea that, okay, well, if you just block it, right, the person will sort of, when they stop it, they'll go back anyway, and they'll go back to, you know, they might go back to overdosing, et cetera, uh, or using too much and overdosing. And so if you can partially block it enough that they're sort of, they have some satisfaction from it, but at the same time, it's blocking so that if they, they do use the original drug, it won't have any effectiveness. And that's been, you know, that's been what we do with Suboxone or buprenorphine for opiates. Now, for other drugs, we've had less clarity on these paradigms. We do use them, for example, in cigarettes or nicotine, right? We have nicotine patches. Patches are more like replacement. We don't really have a complete blocking, but we have a partial blocking. Varenicline, also known as Chantex, as an example of where it's a partial blocking. So although all of the things that I've mentioned have been shown to be used as sort of medical treatments. We haven't had as much effectiveness, but we have some effectiveness for treatments for alcohol use disorder in terms of medications. And also, uh, we're recently having some positive results for medications for stimulant use disorder. In addition to the medications, it's important to understand that there's different treatments that are sort of psychological treatments. So obviously, everyone's heard of 12-step AA programs for alcohol. And then there's also other things that we use to do motivational interviewing, We do contingency management, which is sort of basically the idea that the person's dopamine is sort of low when they need something to get it up a little bit. So so if they do a positive thing, we give them a small reward for that, you know, like a gift card or something like that. That's sort of the best treatment for stimulant use disorder. And then we have cognitive-based therapies to try and get people to sort of 
change their thinking, which have been, since the brain's been hijacked, a lot of times people's cortical thinking is a little off for what it might be. So we sort of work with patients to try and improve their overall thinking and understanding of, of their lives and, their, and how the drugs fit in, etc. So given how complex treatment can be, are there measures we can take to actually prevent addiction in the first place? Absolutely. I mean, the biggest thing we can do, obviously, is avoid adverse childhood events. Uh, that'd be the probably the number one thing that we can do. The next thing is that we can treat other concomitant problems. So screening for adverse childhood events is a, is a big thing. Treating concomitant mental disease and you know mental illness. So the, there's the ideas that are people self-medicating with drugs and that and becoming addicted that way for underlying mental illness. And that's ne- definitely not all people who have addiction, but that is some people who are having addiction. And so being aware of that and treating those mental illnesses makes a big deal. Obviously, getting people treatment. So again, of the 10% of people who are at risk of having addiction and who end up having use disorders, really only about 10% of them go to any kind of treatment at all. So getting people treatment who need treatment in whatever form is best, whether it's medication, whether it's uh, psychological, whether it's uh, support groups, etc. Just getting people to any treatment definitely does help treat it as well as prevent it. Does relapse after treatment mean recovery is not possible? Not at all. So in fact, uh, when people work at recovery houses or w- within recovery programs, their sense is that it can take, you know, on average five or six times before people get better and that the percentage of people that come through there who stick after a year is very small. On the other hand, if you look at lifetime people's ability to recover, it's actually quite high. It's in the high 90s or mid 90s to high 90s. People even throw around the figure of 40% spontaneous recovery if you take all takers. Now, that's not the hardest, most difficult ones, but if you take all takers of people who fall under the category of substance use disorder, about 40% just even with nothing will get better. So a lot of what we're doing is harm reduction and making sure that we're keeping people alive so that their body and their brains have the time. Usually, again, it takes a couple, a year to a couple years before the brain can start rewiring itself and getting back to a reasonable place. And so you may not in that sense, be able to cure people, but recovery is definitely possible. And over the long period, over a lifetime is likely, you just want to, you know, do all you can to make sure that the individual has that opportunity. Finally, is there anything else you'd like to add? Sure. So I primarily work in a hospital and we do uh, consults on patients with addiction and substance use disorders. And I think one of the big things that that's been important for me to getting involved in this and uh, and that I spend a lot of time on is the overlap between the concept of addiction, the concept of the sick role and hospitalized patient, and the concept in the step one of AA of powerlessness and unmanageability. And traditionally in Alcoholics Anonymous, the first step, which is thought to be non-negotiable, sort of a lot of people think of all the 12 steps in AA as something that everyone says has to be done. But if you really look at it within AA, it's sort of mostly that the first step is thought not to be is thought not to be negotiable, and that says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And so the question of what does powerlessness mean and what does unmanageable mean? Well, it obviously doesn't mean that you should just give up and say it's impossible and that's the end of it. What it means is that in the same sense that if you were sick, 
and in a hospital, you know, sick at home or sick in hospital, you would say, well, I need help, right? I need people. This is not something I can do normally, and this is something I have to prioritize first over everything, everything else, at least for the time being. And I think that, the, you know, I think that's a big thing to sort of get across to people who have addiction. It's not that their lives are ruined. It's not that this is something that they shouldn't feel stigma. They shouldn't feel bad about it. They shouldn't they should feel that it is a disease, et cetera, but they, however they view it, they have to prioritize it. They have to put it in a, they have to put it ahead of everything else because in some sense their brain has put it ahead of everything else. And if they're not, if they're not able to sort of relate to it in that way, they're, you know, they're, it's not something that their cortex, their higher level function in their brain can easily um, control the way, you know, the way you can control, you know, if you have a test to do or you have some work to do or, you know, your family wants you to do something, you can sort of say, okay, look, I'll do this and then I'll do this and I'll get back to it. And then it'll, if, and so that's a big thing that I think people sort of misunderstand about in general about people's view of addiction in the world of addiction, as well as within AA, it's not that people are saying other things don't exist in life or that you have to, you know, give up everything else, but it does say that you have to prioritize and that you do have to come to sort of grips with what's what's happened, uh, what is going on with your brain and the prioritization that your brain has actually uh, done. I want to thank you again, Dr. Remler, for taking the time to share your expertise with us, and I hope you can join us again. Uh, I would love to, and uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's, it's been, been a pleasure.